Bible, let's turn to Luke chapter 16. And there's a message notes in your bulletin. There are uh, some questions in life that we are asked that become very awkward to answer. In fact, sometimes people ask you questions they really don't want the truthful answer. Uh, Guys, if your wife says to you, does this dress make me look fat? (laughs) If you haven't answered that in less than two seconds, it's no longer a yes and no answer. It's a question of your IQ. That's what I'd tell you. But guys sometimes do the same thing to their wives, and they say to their wives, hey, you think that guy's better looking than me? And she's like, what, tall, dark, and handsome? No, I'm not into that. I, I'm into short, balding, and aging. That's what I'm at. That's, that's what I, that's, I'm going for. So, uh, yeah, sometimes we really don't want to know the truth to the question that we're asking. And uh, certainly one of the questions that was rolled out on this tape is, is concerning eternity and what happens after we die. And, and uh, so people have a wide variety of different answers. And so last week we looked at the issue of truth. Where do we find truth? Jesus was asked that question by Pilate, what is truth? And so we know that Jesus is truth and Jesus has revealed truth in his word which is the foundation for our worldview when it comes to eternity and what happens after we leave this world. So people are asking that question, and it can be a very awkward question because nobody really wants to sit around and and talk about hell, right? So we're trying to answer the questions, why I'm not a Christian, and one of the reasons people would say is the reason I'm not a Christian is I just can't believe in a, a loving God that would send people to hell for all of eternity. I mean, that just seems to be overkill to me. That seems to be uh, way, you know, the punishment's way beyond the, the crime. And so we are asked uh, these questions, and we're, we're trying to give people truth about God, about Jesus, the Bible, and eternity. And um, here's what I can say to you up front is you will never argue somebody into heaven, Okay. When we give answers to these questions that people are asking, we do not do so in a rude, argumentative way. When people ask me this question, and I get to ask this question a lot because the minute they find out I'm a pastor, they want to know, right? Because God says he's put eternity into everyone, Ecclesiastes 3.11. And so they know instinctively there's something beyond this world. They're just not sure what. So I'm often asked that question, and I learned very early that I just present what I believe and why I believe it, and I leave it at that. The decision is now theirs. Uh, They can respond to the truth, or they can reject the truth, and people do that every day of their lives. So today, I want to talk about this subject, and many Christians avoid this subject, and maybe some of you are sitting here today, and you're struggling with the answer to this question yourself Why would God allow people to go to hell and uh, to be there for all of eternity? And I think the reason that we balk at hell is because we really don't understand what hell is, what it's about, and, and why people would choose to go there. Now, the title of this message is, How Can a Loving God Send Someone to Hell? So let me just say this out of the gate. God has never sent anyone to hell, all right? You choose. It's an act of your choice. It's a decision that you make. And we'll 
find that in the passage we're going to look at. To, but to frame this question, I, I want to take a minute and do that before we get into the text and uh, look at three lessons. So when people ask me this question, uh, I, I, if I have a Bible with me, and even if I don't, I, I, I know the, the text well enough, this is where I always take them. And I give them three lessons out of uh, these texts, this text, and which I'm going to give to you today as a, a talking points that you can help people navigate through this question. But Tim Keller, who is, was the pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City for 25 years, is still alive. He just retired from this church, but he's still a, a premier theologian. Uh, he wrote a book called The Reason for God, and in that there's a chapter on the subject of judgment and talks about how people have problems with hell and judgment. And here's what he says. Modern people inevitably think that hell works like this, that God gives us time, but if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he casts our souls into hell for all of eternity. And as the poor soul falls through space, they cry out for mercy, but God says, too late, you had your chance, now you will suffer, and the, this character misunderstands the nature of evil. And so many misunderstand what hell is, and so we're going to try to unpack that. So let me set the framework for the text that we're going to look at. Number one is you understand that everyone's view of what happens after we leave this world is exclusive, right? So we talked in the very first message that when you say that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no one can come to the Father but by him, or He's the only name under heaven by which people can be saved, the only way you can enter into heaven. People say, but that's too narrow-minded, that's too exclusive. Listen, every religion, even if you're atheist, you have to answer the question, what happens after you die? And if you notice on the video, some people say, well, you know, you just, you're annihilated, you just never existed, and uh, a variety of different answers. So everybody has to have an, answer the question. Even an atheist has to answer the question. And so um, when somebody comes along and says, well, just believe whatever you want to believe, that sounds inclusive, but actually their inclusiveness is really exclusivity, right? So what they're saying is, just believe like I do, and if you believe like I do, everything will work out in the end. Well, but that's not what the Bible teaches us, right? And so uh, please understand, at its core, hell is about separation from God at its core, heaven is about fellowship with God. All right, if people do not want to be with God here on earth, forcing them to be with God in heaven would be hell to them. Uh, we have this misconception that once people die and they understand the consequences of their choices here on earth, that they're all of a sudden going to be like, oh, no, I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven that's not what the Bible, that's not what Jesus teaches us in this story that he gives us. That's probably not the case. To give you an example, ladies, have you ever had a moment in your life where there's this guy pursuing you and he wants to date you and, and uh, he has a, a vision already for, you know, what life's going to be like with you and he's going to marry you and you're just like, uh, I'm not so sure about this. And finally, he, he gets the courage to DTR the relationship, define the relationship and he finally lets it out there, I love you, I want to marry you, I want to spend the rest of my life with you, and uh, you're just not like into him, and so you respond to him by saying, well, I only like you as a friend. 
right? Well, is he going to accept that? Well, no, 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 no. He is convinced that for you to marry him would be heaven on earth, and you're convinced that to marry him would be hell on earth, right? So uh, you're like going to flee the, 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 the country, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I don't, and he says, well, listen, I'm telling you, you're going to love being married to me, and I'm going to force you to marry me. How do you force somebody to marry you, first of all? And if he did that, would that be pleasing to you? Well, of course not. Nor would it be pleasing for God to force people into heaven because they made the wrong choice while they were here on earth. If you think people all of a sudden when they die are going to want to be in God's presence, that's not the case. Number two, judgment is primarily a problem for Western culture. The idea that a loving God would ever judge anyone, that's an you know, would never judge anyone. That's kind of an American idea. Other parts of the world, it's one of the reasons why they do worship God. And they do believe in God because they believe that God is the final judge and that he will make all injustices right. All right they wonder how God could be just if there isn't a hell, an extreme divine judgment that is hardwired into humanity's existence because of all the injustices that happens. If you're in a very war-torn country where you have militias that are just coming into villages and raping women and killing children, you want to believe in a God that's going to bring justice to those individuals who's heaping that kind of, uh, you know, pain and agony upon you. And so a Yale theologian Mishroff Yolf, who is a Croatian, uh, who see, had seen m- many years of violence in the, the Balkans, uh, he, he wrote about that, and I'm not going to read you the lengthy thing, but he basically said, if you believe that God won't judge people, that philosophy actually fuels violence. When people don't think that they're going to be held accountable at the end of their life for their actions, you're actually fueling violence rather than pushing violence back. He's seen enough of it, and so he would, he would know. But so we believe that God is a final judge that gives us the opportunity, um, you know, to, to know that what God says is like vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But the reality is, uh, in our West, Western thought processes, uh, we still believe, because we in America, we're, we're so used to freedom we, we just have entrenched in our thought processes that we're just like, we're free, man. That means I'm the boss. I get to determine what is right. I get to determine what is wrong. And uh, if the majority says it's right, then it's right, right? If the majority says that sex outside of marriage is okay, then it's okay. Why would you push back against that? And so you can go on down the line where the majority of Americans you know, have changed their minds on a variety of different topics and subjects to which God directly addresses. And so even Christians have a tendency to fall under that umbrella, that worldview that, yes, uh, we are our own boss and we are free to do what we want to do. And, and after all, isn't that what freedom is? I get to do whatever I want to do with no consequences for my actions. And we believe so deeply in our personal rights in this realm that the very idea of a divine judgment day just seems impossible. In essence, we're trying to make God as tolerant to sin as we are. But you can't. Right? So 
Um, judgment is, is a problem for our culture. If you're offended by a judging God, would you not be equally offended by a forgiving God? The fact is, God is a God of love. He is a God of justice, and so are you. God built that in you because you're created in his image. For example, you're sitting here this morning, and let's say when you leave here, you go out onto our parking lot only to find out somebody has, like, bashed your car door in, and uh, whether they hit it with a car or did it with a bat, I don't know. They don't leave a note. They're not staying around taking responsibility. What do you do? You start yelling what? Justice, right? I, I want to find out who that is. They need to pay for this. They need, they need to own up to this. This is their responsibility. Where did you get that sense of justice? You got it from your heavenly Father who created you in his, his image. We are all guilty of rejecting God's authority and refusing to give him glory. And the Bible says that is the equivalency of spiritual adultery. You have taken another lover and you have valued that lover above the God who created you. And so, um, God, in his love and his justice, where the love and justice collided, is called the cross at Calvary. How could God love us and not punish us even though we are guilty of our sin and God must exercise his justice and his righteousness against that sin the only way he could do that is to have a sinless substitute, and that's where Jesus comes on the scene. Number three is that most of what we learn about hell is, um, is from Jesus. Is from Jesus. Now, one of the pushbacks, um, before I unpack that for, in a moment, is that at this point as well, why is hell infinite? Why is it unending? Um, that doesn't seem fair, that, that infinite punishment for a finite sin. And the punishment doesn't fit the crime. So Christians have come up with a lot of different options, right, to, to help bail God out and protect his, his um, integrity. So even we say things like, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure that God's going to give people another chance later on after they've, they've died. Maybe they're going to go to hell for a little while, but he, he's going to give them a second chance to, to move on over into heaven. Or, uh, well, you know, it's like one guy said, you just, you just don't exist anymore. It's like annihilation. Uh, you just, you're just annihilated. You never knew you even existed here on earth. Or most Christians really do. If you really push them hard enough, they believe in universalism, that eventually God's going to let everybody go to heaven. It's going to be like, okay, you've paid your dues. We're... But yet Jesus used words in describing hell as everlasting, something that's unending, not something that is temporary. So let me just say two things about why hell is infinite. Number one is the degree to which a person experiences punishment is not typically based on how long it takes them to commit a crime, but the seriousness of the crime. In other words, I can kill somebody in about six seconds. Doesn't mean I'm going to spend six seconds in jail for my crime. The seriousness of the crime requires probably spending my life behind bars, right? The second thing is we all fail to rightly value the moral offenses against God, what the Bible calls sin. We tend to minimize sin. We think it's just small, it's light, surely it's not enough to warrant eternal punishment. You heard somebody on the, uh, many people on the, on the video say, well, you know, about being a good person, and they're a good person, and, you know, hell's, hell's great for Hitler, and, you know, those kinds of people, but, you know, we're good people. 
And uh, Jesus was, was told by the rich young ruler uh, about good, right? What is good? And Jesus said, only God is good. We're not good. Uh, we're sinful. And we don't really see from our perspective how sinful we really are. So last night uh, on TN, TCM, I was, my wife and I was watching the movie. It's called The Picture of Dorian Gray. It's an old movie, uh, and just to give you kind of the basis of it, is that uh, Dorian Gray was this fine, you know, young man. He's 22 years old, very handsome. He has a portrait painted of himself, a full-length portrait. And as he's looking at the portrait at, after it's completed, he thinks to himself, you know what? I'm going to age, and that portrait's always going to look young. And he said to himself, I wish that, that, I, wish that I could stay forever young and the portrait would age. And then he made a, a vow in his heart. He said, I would give my soul for that. And then he got into some incantations and made that pledge. And that's exactly what happened. And then he says, I'm going to spend all of my time living for pleasure. And that's what he did. But what happened over time is that that portrait that was painted of him as a 22-year-old, very handsome young man began to change, began to show aging marks, and it began to show other deficiencies. And the more he engaged in pleasure and the more he engaged in sinful activity, the more grotesque that man became on the picture until it, in the end it was just like this hideous, grotesque individual. And the point of the movie is when God looks at our soul, we can dress it up on the outside, but this is what sin does to us on the inside, and this is the way that God sees sin. It's not just something that he can just, oh, just like, oh, yeah, just forgive, no big deal, go ahead, go on, be, you know, go on your way. No, and sin is against an infinite God, and justice requires an infinite punishment. Now, Jesus does tell us, like, for example, in Matthew 11, that there will be degrees of punishment in, sin, in hell based upon what you have done here on earth. Number three, what most of us, most of what we learn, again, you know, is we learn from Jesus. So Jesus, in his teachings, 13% of his teachings, half of his parables, talks about God's judgment in hell. If you were to take all that's taught in the entire Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament and combine it together, it does not add up to that. Jesus used uh, apocalyptic language in order to describe hell and what it would be like. Jesus spoke not passively about it, but repeatedly. And in his apocalyptic language, it's important to understand, is that he uses things like fire and darkness. Um, sometimes people think that you know, when people go to hell, there's just like this intense fire going on, and they're just like, but they're not being consumed. Like the, it's like putting your hand on a hot stove, and man, it's just going to be so intense, and it's going to be like a hot stove all over your body. That's not what Jesus is describing. That is not the way apocalyptic language is used. For example, the Bible says that, that God is a consuming fire, but it doesn't mean that God's a big fireball out there in the heavens somewhere. Jesus said when he returns to earth in Revelation 19 that he's going to come with a sword coming out of his mouth. doesn't mean he's literally going to have a sword between his teeth yelling, charge. The sword, we know is from Scripture, speaks of the Word of God. He's coming with truth. He is truth, and he's coming with truth. So what does fire do? When you put something in fire, it disintegrates it. It consumes it, 
and it's never satisfied. We don't just see that in hell, we see it in life right now. You ever seen someone who is consumed with an ungodly ambition, is consumed with an unhealthy emotion, or consumed with an addiction? What you find is that person begins to disintegrate to the point that the addiction is all they have, right? They've, they are so into the addiction, so into the drug, that they've, they've just like robbed from everybody in their family and stolen, and they just separated and isolated themselves away from everybody else, and all they have is the drug. That's all they have left, and it's consuming them. It's destroying them. Or people who are consumed with rage and anger, and you, you've probably been around a person who's angry all of their life, and we say things, we use this apocalyptic language, we say that they, their anger has consumed them. This is what Jesus is describing. The fire consumes them and disintegrates them and creates a trajectory into eternity. So, for example, lost humanity is convinced that, man, if I just have this, if I just have this, I'm going to have satisfaction. If I just have this, I'll find contentment. If I just have this, and we move on from thing to thing and relationship to relationship and one after another, but nothing ultimately satisfies because no, God never created an object that was meant to eternally satisfy your soul. That's the role of Jesus. So that's what hell's going to be like. It's just going to be like you're, you're there, but there's nothing there that can satisfy you. You're going to always have this longing and no satisfaction. And if fire disintegrates, then darkness isolates. Once again, that's, that's why the person is consumed by their addiction or emotion. It's like, you ever hear people say, well, nobody understands me. Nobody knows what it's like for me. Uh, everybody's against me. And that's what that's what hell on earth is like, right? So you're so consumed by this thing that you thought was going to bring ultimate satisfaction that was going to alleviate your pain in life, only it consumes you and it's disintegrated you to the point that you isolate yourself away from others and nobody understands, nobody cares, nobody loves me, and that's exactly where Satan wants you. Number four, hell is not Satan's headquarters. Many have a misconception that hell is Satan's head, his headquarters when actually he's never been there. Now he's going to make it there, but he hasn't been there yet. In fact, nobody's been to the hell that Jesus refers to in the New Testament because the Greek word Gehenna, which means a lake of fire, is describing the, the uh, garbage dump outside the city of Jerusalem that burned 24-7. Nobody's even been there yet. Uh, and certainly not... Satan. Satan doesn't wear red spandex and carry a pitchfork. Uh, he was a created angel. He was the leader of the choir, the worship of heaven. And when he spread his wings, all of heaven would begin singing and praising and honoring and worshiping God. And so in the book of Job, when the opening of the book of Job, Satan's with God and God says, where have you been? Satan doesn't say, well, God, I've been down in the bowels of hell planning on how I'm going to destroy humanity. He says, I've been roaming the earth. And then Peter says in his writing that Satan is like a lion who roams the earth seeking to devour whom he may. So let me give you a little description of hell. Um, this is not on your outline. This is free of charge. I want to give you an understanding of hell. All right, so in the Old Testament, hell is referred to as Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. And the New Testament is referred to as Hades. 
Sheol, Hades. Sheol, Old Testament. Hades, New Testament. Sheol, Hades is in two compartments. And we're going to notice in this story that Jesus gives, there's a chasm that separates the two. You can't cross from one side to the other. And so one side is called Abraham's bosom. And you'll find this in the New Testament. It means paradise, a place of rest, a place of fellowship, a place of happiness, comfort. When Jesus died and was resurrected, you'll recall that there was a resurrection of the graves, or, and he was emptying that side of hell called Abraham's bosom, right? That place of comfort. It was like heaven in the midst of hell. Jesus emptied that out, that compartment. Now, there's still Hades, and this is where unredeemed humanity goes to even to this day. Now, there's another word that is used for hell called Tartarus, and this is in 2 Peter, and it is referring to fallen angels who are incarcerated here, and it is believed that these are the, fallen, the angels who sought to intermingle with humanity back in the book of Genesis, and they were judged by God, and they were placed in this containment and will remain there until their day of judgment. Now, there's a third word, and it's called the abyss, and you find that word in the book of Revelation. You'll note that there are some demonic beings who are incarcerated in the abyss, and that one day that when Jesus returns, that Satan will and all the rest of his demons will be placed in the abyss as Jesus rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years, known as millennial reign. At the end of that reign, it says that God empties out the abyss, and, and so the demonic beings and Satan seeks to to um, once again lead humanity in rebellion against Jesus. And then Jesus takes Satan and all of his de demonic beings and emptying out to Tartus and puts them in Gehenna, the lake of fire, for which they will spend all of eternity. Now, it is at the great white throne judgment, the judgment after all of this has taken place for humanity who have rejected Christ they stand before the great white throne judgment, not to determine whether or not they're going to heaven or hell, but to determine the degree in which they're going to receive punishment in hell, and then they are placed in Gehenna, where Satan and his demonic beings are. But if you think that Satan holds the keys to that, he does not. Jesus holds the keys. So humanity is not in hell right now being tortured every day by demonic beings. And I've heard people say that, you know, they left their body and went into hell and saw Satan and demons torturing people night and day. That is a fallacy. That is not what the Word of God teaches. Satan and his demonic beings will have no pull over humanity, okay? So Jesus is the one who, who has the keys to that, to that place, and he is the one who rules over it. Satan has never ruled over anything. That was his. Number five, and we're going to pull these out in this story, no one will be in hell without their consent. When you consistently shut God out of your life and reject him, and you say, stay out, what God does as a gentleman, as a gracious God, he says, okay, have it your way. You have two options. You can live with God or you can live without God. So if you say, I don't want God's authority, I choose godlessness, that's what hell is. Tim Keller says this, hell is simply one freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into eternity. In other words, no one will ever ask to leave hell. In fact, in the story that Jesus gives, the man who is in hell, 
He doesn't ask to leave. He doesn't cry out, God, this is unjust. You've given me a raw deal. You never gave me a chance. He doesn't say any of those things. In fact, he he never even says, you know what, Uh, I'm here on a bum deal. No, God created us as free beings to make choices, so for God to force us to choose him against our own will would go against his own nature. And people say, well, what about those who have never heard? Don't they deserve to go to heaven? After all, they're good people. And again, Jesus said, who is good except God? Jeremiah, who was um, the son of a Levitical priest, said that concerning our hearts, that our hearts are not good, they are wicked, and they are sinful in all of their ways. We may do good things, but our hearts are basically wicked and sinful and deceitful. Who can, who can know that? Jeremiah 17, 9. At its core, the human heart is all about self, not Christ. It's about what's temporary, not what's eternal. It's about what's easy, not what's right. It's, about, it's obsessed with what we want, not what God wants. That's why we need Christ to save us and not just forgive us, but he has to transform us. He has to redirect us and make us new so that we see things from God's perspective and we will be amazed not at the severity of his justice, but the magnanimity of his love. That's what Paul writes about. I, I, I just wish you could just understand the, the magnitude of God's love, the height and the width and the breadth and the depth of his love for you. Scripture says that no one is ever held responsible for what they have not heard. Romans 1 says, humanity has creation, as we talked about last week, that displays God's nature, and they have their conscience, and we have Christ. But what about those who have never heard about Christ? Here's what God does, and I don't have time to get on in and all that. It's a whole message in and of itself. But everyone who seeks the light of God, God gives them further light. He brings them a messenger. Our missionaries can tell stories about this all, all day long, how they go into villages, and they knew that there was a God out there, and they were praying that God would give them light, that give them understanding. And boom, all of a sudden, a missionary shows up and shares with them Jesus. And they all, almost always say, well, we knew there was someone. We just didn't know what to call him. Right now, the Muslim community in Iran and other countries are being reached by the thousands And one of the primary ways that God is reaching them is by giving them dreams about Jesus. If God wants to bring light to them, he can get it to them. And so it's just a question of what they do with it once they have it. So now that we hear at this story that Jesus gives about a rich man and Lazarus, I don't want to draw out three um, lessons real quick. Um, and looking, you know, in the context of the framework I just gave you, because there's some words going to be used here, and I, so I'm not going to take all the time to explain them. But uh, here's the first lesson, is that hell is a place of torment, not torture. There's a difference. So look in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Remember that shield, Hades, two compartments, Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side? That's what he's referring to. The rich man also died and was buried 
in hell in Hades, the other compartment, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Circle that word torment. He didn't say torture. We think that hell is some kind of torture chamber, that somehow God gets some kind of satisfaction by watching people being tortured because they sinned against him. That is not God at all, and that's not what hell is about. Torment speaks of something internal. Torture speaks of something external, something that's being done to you, like, you know, you're being strung up and you're being whipped or uh, some outside force. Hell is about what's happening inside. Lots of people are tormented even right now. People are tormented by their past. People are tormented by their choices, by the words that somebody spoke to them. People are tormented by the pain of somebody leaving them. This is why the word is used in other places in scriptures, but it's translated as grief and sorrow. This is hell. Hell is perpetual grief and sorrow. It's a lacking. It's a non-satisfaction. It's, 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 it's like a grief and sorrow. Here's what Jesus said in Luke 13, 28. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is gnashing of teeth? It's associated with, in the Bible, with anger or rage. You're so upset. You're just so mad. You're just so, ugh. But it's not an anger and rage in reference to, to hell about, oh, I shouldn't be here. It's, I, I got a raw deal. God did. I didn't deserve that. Not just the exact opposite. For example, if you've ever been driving down the road and all of a sudden you see a blue light behind you and know you've been tagged for speeding. And you pull over it and you're angry at yourself, right? Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I know better than this. It's going to cost me a lot of money. Like I got tagged, you know, about six months ago in a construction zone, which means your fines are doubled, right? So now it's double the price. And I'm like, oh, why do I do that? I'm going to buy me a radar detector so I don't get this, you know. So. And then you're angry at your wife. Like, why didn't you see that police officer before I was? Not a wise move. It's a sign of a low IQ. Now, your anger is not repentive anger. It's not like, oh, I repent of what I'm doing. I'm never going to speed again. Nah. That lasts for about a nanosecond, right? So this is what, what the story is describing here. This is what hell is describing. Um, nobody's in hell repenting of their sin. There's just this anger and this this gnashing of teeth, this, this sorrow, this grief that I've got caught, that I'm here, and I, I know I deserve it, and I, I really can't say I don't deserve it. And so there's, there's like this guy, no, at no time does he say to God, I don't deserve this. Uh, I, I lived a better life than that. I, I, I don't deserve what you've given me. N none of that. The torment of hell burns in our hearts, and he in the here and now, and here's what the smoke smells like. It smells like we feel unhappy and unfulfilled at every point in our lives. 
And you think, well, if I get this, now I'll be happy. If I achieve this, now I'll be happy. If I get this, but what, what happens? If you find it, you get it, you achieve it, you're never happy. How many people have reached the pinnacle of their careers or the pinnacle of their athletic abilities and have Super Bowl rings and trophies and all of them say the same thing? They say, oh, I worked all of my life. I dedicated everything I had to this. And is this all there is? A few rings, a few trophies are going to get stuck on a shelf somewhere. This is not satisfying. It never works out. Or we are prone to jealousy. Jealousy uses, usually rises out of personal unhappiness because you look at someone else and you think, well, they have what I need to be happy. If I just had what they had, I would be happy also. And so we rant and hate them for having what they have. Or we trample on others in pursuit of our own pleasures. It's not that we are sadistically mean people. It's just that we prioritize our happiness and and if we have to occasionally use other people to acquire things, to get happy, uh, you know, if I've got to mistreat my family, if, if I've got to step on some people at work, if I've got to cut some corners and cheat my way, uh, you know, it, it's just going to work out for me because, you know, I, I, I just want to be happy. I, I'm pursuing pleasure or we are prone to addictions. We can't say no to pleasure, so it, we take the forms of drug addictions and alcohol and pornography and food and eating disorders. And these are all the soul craving something internally that it just can't satisfy. Obedience to God feels like a drudgery. God bores us, and we secretly resent him for trying to put rules over our lives that we must submit to. And so we do so, though, not you know, out of fear or guilt. But when you really look close to us, when you really look deep in our hearts, we really just don't delight in obeying God. Those are the, it's the smoke of hell rumbling inside of us. And so hell is about being placed in a situation where those rumblings will always be unsatisfied. Heaven's just the opposite. Because Jesus is our ultimate satisfaction, and that's where we find ourselves is with him. So nobody goes there without their own consent. The rich man goes there, and this is, what, this is all he had, right? He spent his entire life in luxury, his entire life in wealth. Now he finds himself in hell. What does he have? All he has is his identity as being a rich man. But he left all the wealth behind. Because when life is said and done, it all goes back in the box. And so now he had nothing to satisfy him, nothing to pursue. He was a religious man because he called on his father Abraham. In fact, what precipitated this whole discussion is Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees, and he's really trying to point out this is, this is who you guys are. And so here's a guy who is, is religious, but religion has, has nothing to do with genuine relationship with God. It's, it can be about social position, earning a place in heaven, just staying true to your family and your culture. And that's why he calls out, to, again, to his father Abraham and not to God. Why doesn't he call out to God? If you want to call out to somebody, why don't you call out to God? He doesn't even call out to God. He only calls out to Abraham. And then when he calls out to Abraham, it's only to say, hey, get Lazarus, you know, that beggar that was at my door filled with sores. Get him to do something for me. Go get a beverage for me. I'm thirsty. Verse 
Number two, hell is a place no one asks to leave. No one asks to leave. Verse 24, so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in, the fi- in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who want to go from here To you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Abraham, tell Lazarus, go get me a beverage. Why does he want water? Well, look in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. You can just listen. It says... Matthew 5, 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And what he is referring to here is what theologians call common grace. See, while we're living in this world, everybody is the recipient of God's grace, whether you're saved or unsaved, good or bad. God sends rain, right, to replenish the earth. He sends the sunshine to make things grow. He's the one who pumps blood through your heart. He's the one who keeps you sustained and living and going. And so you are the recipient of God's common grace. But when you find yourself in hell, that common grace has been removed. And so he's wanting something that common grace used to afford him but can no longer do so. He's looking for that satisfaction He's looking for that thing that will do it. And so there are good things that God does in the world, whether you walk with him or not. He's still going to send the sunshine, unless you live in Ohio, and he's still going to send the rain. Good things are going to happen. God is being gracious to even those who despise him in this world. That's why there's no rain, only darkness, because God has removed that common grace. Mark Clark, who wrote the book, The Problem with God, said this, but here's the haunting part, there is no water. In other words, hell is the place where the common grace of God, the blessings and comforts that he provides to all of us no longer exist. All the stuff we enjoy, we think we possess because we work so hard for it, is no longer there. God's grace is absent. Hell exposes the lie that we told ourselves since the garden, the lie that we don't need God. The reason why no one asks to leave hell is because the room is locked from the inside. Pride is the essence of sin will not allow you to unlock the door. Pride says, I do it my way. Pride says, I'm the boss. Pride says, I don't need Jesus. Pride says, I'll, I'll forge my own path. And somebody says, well, what, won't God just save everybody? What, why doesn't he just save everybody? How? How can he do that? Against their will? Some people would rather be ruined than changed. They'd rather continue in their rebellion than to be reformed. God says, have it your way. And so he quarantines you so that you cannot pollute his new creation, the new heavens and earth that he is creating. 
And so again, if, if you think that somebody who can't bear to be with God for one hour on Sunday, that they would want to be with him 24-7 for all of eternity, are you kidding me? For them, that would be hell. That's why no one asks to leave. Number three, hell is a place where God still reveals his love. Look at verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You see, God loves this rich man who is totally self-consumed, who has chosen to separate himself from God. When Abraham refers to him, he refers to him as son, technon, which is the Greek word that God uses of his sons and daughters that are children of his. If you think that God somehow gets some kind of delight because people have entered into hell and chosen to separate themselves from him, he gets no delight. The Bible says, God says that it is my desire, my longing that all would come under repentance, that all would come to faith in Christ, that no one would end up in this place that God really originally designed for Satan and his demonic beings, not for humanity, but when we sided in rebellion with Satan and his demonic beings, this is where we end up. This is the trajectory upon which it takes us. And so he asks Abraham to send some, you know, Moses, or prophet, or uh, somebody back to uh, his brothers and say, man, you got to warn them. I'm telling you, if somebody from the dead rises up and goes and warns them, they will turn, they'll repent. They're not going to come here. You know what he's trying to use? Same thing we try to use. Fear. Let me tell you what hell's like. Let me get you so afraid of it that you'll come to Jesus. Fear doesn't create true obedience, only outward compliance and only for a season. Here's been my observation in 35 years of pastoring, people who make a profession of faith out of driven by fear do so basically to get their get out of jail, get out of hell, hell card free. And then once they have that, it's like, Lord, I'll just live my life. The, I'll take care of my life from here on out. I'm going to live the way I want. I'm going to do what I want. I've got my card to get out of hell. I know I'm not going to go there. So I, and that is a false sense of security which is what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7. He said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to paradise. People who are fear-driven don't last long. And Jesus gave a parable about that, the four soils. And when the seed hits the soil and all of a sudden, you know, the weeds come up and choke it out and, and it's very short-lived. Rather than telling people what to run from, we need to tell people what to run to, and that's Jesus. Moses is representative of the law, the law that we cannot possibly keep, the standards we can never meet, which is why we need a Savior in the first place. And the prophets speaks of the love of God, which is the sacrifice of our Savior, who so loved us that he died in our place. 
In fact, one of the prophets, Isaiah, wrote this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds you are healed. We are like sheep who have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. The reason why Jesus talks so much about hell and judgment and using apocalyptic language over and over again is because he knew that fear would never save us. We need something greater than that. We need a new heart. We need a new affection. It is the love of God, the Bible says, that leads us to repentance, not fearing hell. That will be short-lived. The only way God could remain just but not punish us for our sin was to punish a sinless substitute who voluntarily took our punishment in our place, and that's where Jesus comes in. So if somebody wants to have a conversation with me about hell, I'm glad to have that conversation. But I want to know what they feel about, what, what they, they're believing, what is their worldview. Listen, uh, I would rather talk to a guy who died and resurrected from the grave and who knows what's on the other side rather than someone who has no earthly idea. They're guessing it best. We come to Jesus because we see his love. We surrender our life to Christ as Lord and Savior and put our full trust in him. And it's at that moment in time that the Spirit of God baptizes us into the body of Christ, and we are enveloped in Christ and he in us. There is a great exchange that takes place. Jesus takes upon himself our sin, and he exchanges our sin for his righteousness, and he clothes us in, our, in the righteousness of Christ. Do you realize there is a dress code in heaven? If you think that Satan, by one sin, was cast out of the heavens, that you and I are going to come marching into heaven clothed in our sin, not a chance. If you're not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you have no entrance into the kingdom of God, no entrance into, into heaven for all of eternity. It is imputed righteousness that's been placed upon us because of our faith in Jesus and him alone. And that is why there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved except Jesus Christ. People often try to remove hell and try to make... God seemed more loving. But don't you realize if you try to remove hell, you actually make God less loving? Because if there's no hell, then it costs God nothing to love us. But if there is a hell, then Jesus bore hell, sin, death, and all of it on the cross, which says then, therefore, it cost God everything to love us. It breaks God's heart that someone would reject him and choose to be separated from him for all of eternity. God never stops loving anyone. It's not in his nature. He even loves those to whom rejected him. It would be the equivalency of you as a parent raising a child and they storming into your house one day and saying to you, I hate you. I don't ever want to be around you. You are dead to me. That's in essence what humanity has done to the very God who created them out of love. But God's love still never wavers. So there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done or my will be done. 
And that determines the direction of where you'll spend eternity. Let's bow our heads together.